You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, and for those of you that I have not yet met, I just want to say good morning. That's why we haven't really got to be very good friends, because you're terrible at that. <laughs> I'm Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus of Bethel, and it is a thrill to be here. I want to say it's, it's an honor. It's a thrill to be with the people of grace. Do you understand the gravity of this? We are the people of grace. We are those who have received grace. The people in the chairs around you, you will never not know again for all eternity. That's pretty cool. And the people from downtown, we want to say good morning as well. It's so good to be among the people of grace. Those who have received grace can then give grace. We've been in a study talking about that critical, crucial component of the Christian gospel that is grace, not law. Focusing on the finished work of Christ rather than all of my unfinished business. It is finished, is what Jesus said on the cross. Praise God, he did not say, now, get after it, tiger. It is finished. We've been in a pulpit rotation. It's been so fun to be with the people of grace in White House, to be with the people of grace here at the South Campus, to have Ross and Mark move around as well. We've gotten to share from God's word, among God's people, by God's spirit, the truth of our gospel. It is all about grace. We've talked about marriage. We are to give grace, not law, in our marriages. Why? Because we are the people who are the recipients of grace. And this morning, I want to continue that on I want to move a little further down into the realm of the home with respect to grace. And I want to talk about parenting. Now, some of you might instantly go, click, I'm tuning out, I don't care. I'm an empty nester, my kids are done and gone, I've graduated, whew, I'm out. Or maybe some of you are students, maybe some of you are single adults, and to you, your idea is as follows, children are to be seen but never heard. Those little ankle biters are so irksome and irritating. But listen, we have the opportunity from God's word to speak truth into our context, into our congregation, and even into our community so that everybody who sits in this place is a little bit better equipped to parent parents. So that as parents become weary and even discouraged that other people who have gone on the journey can call them alongside, shoulder to shoulder, and say, hey, let's go grab coffee. Let's just, let's just catch up, and let's just talk about how it's going. We have the opportunity as a church to parent parents because it takes a church to raise a Christian. So this morning, I want to talk about parenting. Maybe you're a student, and you don't think this applies to you, but I want you to hear children and students how your parents are prayerfully preparing to parent you as best they possibly can. Parenting is a challenge. I have a friend who attends the downtown campus. He has two children, and he just found out that he's going to have a third. 
And he said, Eric, it's kind of like this. Sometimes with my two kids and parenting, I, I feel like I'm drowning. But then I heard that I was going to have a third kid and it felt like I was drowning and someone threw me a baby. <laughs> I'm not real sure what I'm going to do, but I'm kind of freaking out here. And I said, that's okay. You're not alone. We're with you. We want to come alongside. So regardless of your situation in life, I am convinced that God has a word for all of us. Now, admittedly, I come to a passage and I come to a sermon on parenting with great levels of fear and trepidation. It's kind of like why you never see a guy like Homer Simpson leading a CrossFit class. I feel quite unworthy to teach CrossFit or to parent. And I'm not saying that because I have bad sons. I have great sons. They're actually very wise young men of integrity and nobility and character. And in fact, that is the thing as I think about Father's Day, that is the thing that I want most for my sons, is wisdom. If you really pressed me and put me up against the wall and said, what is it that you want for your kids? The most precious thing I would want for them, wisdom. Proverbs 16, 16 says that wisdom is to be treasured above gold, understanding above silver. In other words, it far transcends any human value or worth. It's wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. How then do we get wisdom into our kids? I can say that by grace, my kids, my two sons, are well on their way to wisdom. I'm a happy father. So how do we get wisdom into our kids? Here's our big idea for the morning. Here's hopefully the portable statement that we'll all walk out of here with. It is grace that paves the way of wisdom than necessarily not law. It is grace that paves the way of wisdom, not law. We go to God's word expecting, anticipating, eagerly hoping that our thinking will be changed. D.A. Carson said, we go to God's word to think God's thoughts after him. That we would begin to think theologically about every context, every circumstance, every environment, indeed, every relationship, we would begin to see it through God's eyes. What if we, as God's people, by God's Spirit, coming to God's Word, could begin to see every child in this church, at this campus, in our community, the way that God sees them? Perhaps that would begin to change our interactions with them. I want to go to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. This is God's word. I want to talk a little bit more about wisdom. This most precious, priceless treasure of value that God makes abundantly available. The book of Proverbs is all about the book of wisdom. It crafts and it creates a correct worldview, helping us to see the world rightly as if through God's eyes. And the first step of wisdom is an accurate picture of who God is. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord. That is a right estimation, a clear understanding of who he is, what he has done, what he is like. That is the first fruit. That is the basis. That is the foundation of wisdom, of understanding, and of knowledge. Wisdom is this crucial thing that actually helps us to live more godly lives. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says that wisdom 
is being equipped to deal rightly with the 80% of life that is not covered explicitly in the Bible. So much of our lives are not detailed directly in God's word. We just have to know, hey, this is what God is like. This is what God has done. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, how would Jesus live my life if he were me? Not just what would Jesus do? Oh no, how would Jesus live my life if he were me? Knowing the answer to that question is wisdom. This is what I want for our children. This is what I want for our people. This is what I want for myself. Proverbs are principles. They are not promises. So often I hear people say, well, I did that and God didn't come through. No, no, it's a misunderstanding of how the Proverbs are supposed to be used. They are principles on which we build and base our lives. They are not promises. They're not formulas. They are not contracts that bind God to some particular action when we just give it our best shot. They are principles. They're not promises. Two years ago this month, I got the opportunity to preach my dad's funeral. It's something I knew was coming for many years. He had been in failing health. But the weight of that moment was staggering. And by God's grace, the night before his funeral, I sat down and tried to prayerfully prepare. How do I, how do I summarize? How do I synthesize? How do I, how do I bring this man's whole eight decades of life? And how do I honor him and celebrate him to the people that knew him and loved him best? And it, it came in a bolt. The thing that he always used to say. Son, the thing that differentiates you from anybody else is it's wisdom that makes a man a man. Wisdom makes a man a man. If I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times. This from a guy who never finished the ninth grade, dropped out of high school, ran off and fought in the Navy in Korea. And yet he's the wisest man I ever knew. And he made it his life's mission to deposit wisdom into me, into my brother. And he did this, not perfectly, but I never, ever wondered for a nanosecond if my dad was a product of grace. I knew him in whom my dad had believed. And it made all the difference in the world. And it set me on the path of wisdom. Wisdom's what we're after. Derek Kidner says it this way, Proverbs calls out to us in the streets more than it ushers us into the churches. In other words, it's intensely and immensely practical, this thing called wisdom. It is what godliness looks like in weekday clothes. Proverbs are God's instruction to wisdom without actually having to experience the lesson yourself. We have an expression in Spanish. We say, aprendemos de golpe. And it means we learn by banging our heads, or at least that's me. Proverbs says, you don't have to bang your head. Solomon says, I've already banged my head. Learn from my error. Learn from my experience. Learn from my mistakes. See the world through God's eyes. We want wisdom. That's how we want to parent. That's how we want to lead. That's how we want to love our people and our homes and our churches. So again, Proverbs 22.6, I call this the wisdom way word. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me quickly unpack and break this little passage down. The first word train, the word is chanak. It has the idea of dedicate, to set aside for a specific purpose, to narrow the focus and the function of use. When Nehemiah comes back from exile in Babylon to Israel, they begin to build a wall. And Nehemiah says, this is not just any wall. 
This wall is sacred. This wall is set apart. It is different. We're going to hanach this wall. It is for God's people to have security and safety so that they can flourish and thrive and be God's people. They set it aside. It was specifically determined for that purpose. When they built the altar, they hanak the altar in the temple. It was specifically to be a place where the sacrifice would occur, where an innocent animal would die to atone for the sins of another. That's all it was used for. They never once played Uno on the altar. It was set aside. It was different. When you had a home in ancient Israel, you would come and hanak that home. You would dedicate it and say, this is a home that is set aside, not just to be a dwelling, not just to be residence. This is the place where this little pocket of God's people will dwell and thrive. You hanaked it. You set it aside. When they built the temple, they hanak the temple. Said, this is going to be the edifice, the structure that is the demonstration and the showplace of the glory of our God. Anybody can come from all over the world and they can see what our God is like by looking at this structure. So the writer of Proverbs 22, 6 says, Hanak, a child. This word Hanak comes from a priestly term. What does a priest do? A priest points people to the sacrifice. A priest says, oh, there is sin, but he has made a way. You see, there is a savior. A priest sets things aside in the service of Yahweh. Hanak, your children, set them aside. A couple of years ago, we studied through the book of Judges, and we discerned, we discovered, we detected that there is one key ingredient. If you want to wipe out a civilization, if you want to utterly destroy a society, here's what you do. You fail to teach the younger generations about the faithfulness of God. That's the story of the book of Judges. Stop teaching about the grace and the glory and the faithfulness of God, and that society will implode and cease to exist. It's happened for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Oh, but surely we'll be the first that are different. Or maybe not. To teach our younger generations about the faithfulness of God. Wisdom is an understanding of God's grace. It prepares people. It sets them aside. It dedicates them to be the very dwelling and the abode of God Most High. And so, as a parent, you get to be a part of something very special. See, the word Hanak is where we get our word for Hanukkah. Hanukkah was the dedication of the second temple between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They came under the Maccabean revolt. They revolted against the Roman Empire and they rededicated the temple. They hanak the temple and God did a miracle. God kept the lampstand, the menorah lit. Even when it should have gone out, God kept the lights on. And so, when you're a parent, you, you get to celebrate Hanukkah every day because you're training up your child. Well, what is exactly a child? Na'ar is the word. A child simply cannot be, simply must not be in any of our minds what our world tells us that a child is. It's simply the equation of time plus matter plus chance. That's all a child is according to our world. But you know better. You see the light in their eyes as they run around, as they make those noises. You know that it's not just time plus matter plus chance. A child is a human being comprised of material and immaterial, of physical and spiritual parts. I am convinced, I believe, that at conception, parents contribute 
both physical and spiritual into their children, both material and immaterial to their children. Oh, look, she has your eyes. Oh, look, he has your temper. Oh, look, she has your hair. Oh, look, he has your lack of sense of humor. We really are chips off the old block, not just physically, but also spiritually, not just materially, but immaterially. That's what a child is. We are procreators and co-creators. A child is a person whose image of God has been marred by sin. It is yet to be fully refined and redeemed. A child is an eternal creation, an image bearer of God most high, and yet one that God has foreknown before the foundations of the earth, Revelation 13, 7. Before God said, let there be light, he had already said, let there be life. He's foreknown. This is what a child is. A child is in the process of attaining wisdom. Now, the Talmud, which is the Jewish rabbinic commentary on the Torah, said that a child, na'ar, was anybody between the ages of birth and 24. <laughs> This is where we say amen. We can look around at our society, our culture, even our community and go, oh yeah, childhood is extended. In fact, therapists and counselors and oncologists have, have figured out a new term. They call it adultolescence because it's just longer and harder to get people to actually launch. A, adolescence lasts into the mid-20s now, which is a completely different thing than how I was raised. When I turned 18 on my birthday in August, my dad stuck out his hand and said, I love you, I am proud of you, you are free to visit anytime. <laughs> Get out of here. And that was it. And from then on, home was wherever I lived. Dad blessed me with that. But a child is someone who is still in the process of gaining maturity and wisdom. Hanak na'ar. Train a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go. Now, we have to know this. In all of the book of Proverbs, there are only two paths described. There's only two ways you can go. There is the way of wisdom, that is seeing the world through God's eyes and then walking accordingly, or there is the way of foolishness, which is seeing the world according to the fallen nature. So there are only two ways you can go. The literal expression is, train up a child upon the mouth of his way, which isn't real helpful. That doesn't explain a whole lot. It's a Hebrew figure of speech. It's just an idiomatic expression. And it means in accordance with the manner of life to which he is destined. Now, it does require that you know the raw materials that you have been given. I have two sons. They could not be more different. One of them can tell you the square root of a moose and the circumference of Pluto like that. He's just a mathematical genius. The other one could break a cannonball. They're just very, very different. I have to know that they are actually wired a little bit different. I do exegesis and understanding of them, and then I lead them in a custom-configured way of wisdom. But what it does not mean is figure out their bent and just go with it. Somewhere in the early Middle Ages, a rabbi named Saadia said, oh, you, that passage means that you figure out how they're broken, and you just fan that into flames, and it'll be all right. And unfortunately, for centuries, people heard Proverbs 22.6 and thought that it meant, well, that's just how God made little Johnny. I can't do anything about that. No. There are only two ways in Scripture that you can go, the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. And what Proverbs is telling us is that the way that he should go, 
the destination of his creator is different than the way he would go. They're not the same. See, every child has potential. Every child is born with immense potential. They can be an absolute blight on humanity. Adolf Hitler was not a nice guy. He did an enormous amount of damage. Or a child has the potential to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a contemporary of Hitler's who was a brilliant Christian writer, thinker, theologian, ended up being a martyr for the Christian faith. What's the difference? The difference is an understanding of who God is, what he has done, and therefore who and whose I am. The difference is grace. The reality is that the vast majority of children are somewhere in between Hitler and Bonhoeffer, and that pendulum goes back and forth on a day-by-day basis. So what are we supposed to do? Clearly, we're just supposed to remind them of what they should do. No. We give them the gospel in every conceivable context. We tell them the truth of who God is and what he has done, and he begins to instill and infuse and inject wisdom into them. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. How does the gospel translate to that situation with your mother, with your friends, at school, with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend? How does the gospel bring to bear the truth of who God is? That's what we do. That's what begins to unleash the potential of a child that has been given to them by God. We give them the gospel. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The path carved out for them will still direct them in their older age. That is, yazkin, when they are mature, when they are walking around in wisdom. This does not mean, by the way, that once you begin giving your kids the gospel in every conceivable context, that they won't sin. doesn't mean that they won't make bad choices. In fact, they will invent ways of disappointing you. They will come up with new and creative, innovative ways of breaking your heart because that's what they do. But you are setting them on the path. Why? Because they will have seen the beauty and the efficacy of the gospel in you. It'll change everything about them. So they're being prepared to be a lifelong walker in wisdom. So we're supposed to train up our children in the way they should go. And even when they're old, they will not depart from it. That's great. Nice proverb. Thanks a bunch. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we actually do? Well, let me pump the brake there. Most of us, whether we know this or not, are products of Greek thinking and Greek philosophy. That means we have convinced ourselves as a society that education is the answer. Reason, logic, explanation, data, that's the answer. That's what's going to fix us. And that comes from a guy named Plato, lived about 2,300 years ago or so. And Plato said this, to know good is to do good. In other words, if I just know what's right, I'll always do it. <laughs> Has that been your experience? Has that been your kid's experience? If they just knew the right choice, they'll always make it. No, not exactly. No, not exactly. No, in fact, not ever. That is a relatively recent and regional development. Only Western civilization. That thought, that mindset is completely foreign to the ancient Near East when Proverbs was written. It's a recent Western idea. No, simply knowing is insufficient. 
I'm sorry, childhood hero, G.I. Joe. You're wrong. Knowing is not half the battle. It's a lie, G.I. Joe. You're wrong. It's not just about knowing. Adam and Eve did not simply have an information problem. Adam and Eve had a heart problem. Their heart began to turn in on itself and seek their own gain because they did not trust God. We call that folly. Listen to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly, that's foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. In other words, you cannot reason or explain or educate the folly out of them with lecture and logic and reason and explanation. Every single child, all of them, they come out of the wrapper preloaded with a virus. Every single one of them comes preloaded with a selfism virus. They come into our world as little messiahs. I am the center of the universe. That's mine, mine, mine. You don't have to teach them how to lie. They figure it out themselves. All of them come preloaded with it. Folly is bound up in their hearts by default. And so what the writer of Proverbs is saying, it's discipline, not simply punishment. All the difference in the world. Discipline involves a 360 degree, fully orbed intentionality of discourse, of explanation, but also demonstration in you. It is much more involved and complex than simply punishment or consequence. It is loving. That's what discipline is. It's loving. It is doing the hard thing for their sake. Proverbs 13, 24 says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son. <laughs> I think I was well into my 40s before I realized there was a second half to that verse. <laughs> my dad would say, now boy, I love you. Go get me the board. And when I had done something wrong, which was a, an hourly occurrence in my youth, he would make me go to the kitchen, open the cabinet, and get the paddle that he himself had made. He had taken a, a two-by-six of, of white pine, and he'd polished it. He'd sort of carved it down to a paddle, drilled a couple holes in it, painted it flaming orange, and drilled a couple holes. And then with a black marker, he wrote, the Board of Education. <laughs> oh, I missed that thing. He would make me go and get it, and do the walk of shame and atonement to him. And he would sit on his awesome 1977 orange burka lounger, and he would make me lay across his lap, and he'd say, now boy, tell me what you've done. I would have confessed to the Holocaust, the plagues of, middle, of the Middle Ages, uh, pestilence. I would have confessed to anything. He said, now I want to know specifically what you did, and I would tell him, and then he would bring that paddle down. And it would create this rip in the time-space continuum. He had these forearms like Popeye on three cans of spinach and he could whip it with his wrist and it would literally change like the date and time. And he would make impact and the whole world would flash with like this nuclear holocaust thing. And I, I, I was very sorry at that point. And then I realized there was a second part to the verse. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Oh, but my dad loves me. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Later in life, I realized that it broke my dad's heart to do that. He hated it because his dad was abusive. I never knew my grandfather, but he used to physically abuse my dad, and it broke my dad's heart to have to do that, but he had to do it because what he wanted most for his kids was wisdom. And so he taught, he disciplined, but he did so with love. 
He loved me enough to have a hard conversation and to tell me the truth. He risked in the midst of his own insecurity. He risked me not wanting to be his buddy. And he told me, I'm not your friend, I'm your dad. And I love you. So he disciplined him. The rod of discipline without love is abuse. And it is never, ever what Solomon or the other writers of Scripture had in mind. Now I know that so much of the Old Testament seems to focus on law. But we have to remember that the law was actually grace. Psalm 119 has 176 verses, and every single one of them says the beauty, the glory, the riches of God's word, his laws, his tenets, his precepts, his decrees. They're marvelous. They reveal to us the righteousness of God. When God gave the law in Exodus 19, it was a grace. But what about now in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, on the coming of Christ and the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, what does it look like now to be the people of grace, the church? How are we different? Are we still supposed to focus on the law? Paul says in Colossians 2, no, the law was nailed to the cross. It's done. This is what it means to be the people of grace in the New Testament. We are to focus on the law. But too much focus on the law alone swells up in us and reveals our own sin more and more and more. Paul said in Romans 7, the more I look at the law, the more I'm reminded of my own sin. John Owen, famous English theologian, says this, he who carries his sin up Mount Sinai will only have it strengthened, but he who carries his sin to the cross will see sin lose its power. See, God's law is good, but it is insufficient to transform a single human life. Let me say that again. The law is good, but it is insufficient to transform a single human life. Rules and regulations don't do it. It's grace. Grace focuses on what has already been done. Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law himself. Perfection his active obedience in his earthly ministry in life, he has done it. But wait, there's more. On this side of the cross, we have what the reformers called union with Christ. Colossians 2 says that he is the walking around bodily presence of all the wisdom of God. And we have union with him. When God sees us, he sees us as the wisdom of Jesus. We have union with Jesus. Not only that, We are permanently indwelled and sealed by the third member of the Godhead Trinity, his Holy Spirit. Permanently indwelling as our helper, our counselor, our advocate, our comforter, and our guide. Permanently for all eternity. But not only that, James 1.21 says we have his living word inscribed, engraved on our hearts and souls. So that when we, who are the bearers of his living word, come to the written word on the page, it reverberates and resonates and it changes us. We focus on grace. And so having received grace, we do meditate on God's law. But we meditate on all of the ways that Jesus fulfilled it and deposits it fully into our account, even though we don't deserve it. So what are we actually supposed to do if we want for our families, our children in this church, in this congregation to have wisdom? What do we do? I just want to remind us that grace paves the way of wisdom. I want to give five quick biblical principles from this passage to help give us proper perspective in parenting. They are not promises. They're not formulas. They're not guarantees. They are principles. The first principle is this. God gives adults wisdom. God gives 
children parents. All the difference in the world. God gives adults wisdom. That's how you know that you are an adult. You have wisdom. But he gives children parents. If you've ever found yourself asking your kid, what were you thinking? You don't have to ask the question. You already know the answer. They're thinking about themselves and about themselves only because they don't have wisdom. They have parents. Now, you may be thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Parents, I thought giving kids wisdom was the church's job. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask. Actually, that notion of the church being responsible to implant and infuse and inject wisdom into a child is very recent, very new. Sunday school only began in the mid-19th century in England. A bunch of ladies saw that there were children who were being forced to work in, fa in factories to feed their families, and so they couldn't go to school on weekdays. And so these well-meaning women said, hey, let's bring them to church on Sunday, and let's teach them to read in a Sunday school using biblical texts. It's only about 150 years old, but there was one denomination in particular that said, no, this is a terrible idea. We must not do it. We must not have this occur, and it might surprise you. It was the old Baptists who said, no, this is a terrible idea. This is what they wrote. They said, if we take the training of children into the church, then the fathers will no longer see it as their duty to train their children, and they will lay aside their daily duty to instruct their children in the Bible, and they will instead seek gain. I think they were right. The old Baptists of the 19th century in England, they knew that training and wisdom begins in the home. Proverbs 29.18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no chazon, where there is no revelation of God, of who he is, what he's done, and what he's like, when there's none of that, the people cast off restraint. Now, I know it's hard for you to imagine a child that is cast off restraint. Somebody agrees. Have you ever seen a child that is cast off restraint? Simply bludgeoning them with the rules won't do it. Oh, you might get a slight alteration in behavior temporarily. But no, we want to, as fathers, as mothers, as aunts and uncles and grandparents and neighbors, we want to remind them of who God is, what he's done, and what he's like. That is what keeps them from casting off restraint. We have the responsibility to teach them the truth of the gospel to reveal God. This is why I'm so thankful for Bethel at all three campuses that we really emphasize what we call our milestones ministry. Here on the South Campus, Pastor Brent Kirkley and Clint Wright and his whole team, they are completely committed to helping other volunteer leaders equip you as families to do the work of discipleship and ministry in the home. That's Ephesians 4.13. Why? Because as staff members, we get maybe 40 hours a year with your kids. But you as parents, you get 1,000 hours a year with your kids. And so we believe that parents, families are a force multiplier of depositing wisdom in the homes. So God gives adults wisdom. He gives children parents. Second principle, focus on the why more than the what. Parents, when you're talking to your kids, are you only ever telling them the what, the what, the what? Pause, pump the brake, tell them the why. Now, clearly, very early on, all you can do is tell them what. Don't eat that. Don't stick that in there. Don't eat that since you've stuck it in there. And that's kind of the things that you have to do. But over time, they will begin to discern what you love, 
what you care about, what you are passionate about, and they will want to know why. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Be ready to articulate the why to your kids. See, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created us, man, woman, in his image, but it never tells us why. We have to read the whole of the Bible to understand, oh, this is what Job was figuring out, what David was figuring out, what Moses was figuring out, what Solomon was figuring out. God created man in his image because God is a giving God. He wants to share of himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to be loved or need to be worshiped. He is a giving God. And when you come to terms with the fact that you are a recipient of his goodness and glory and grace, do you splatter onto your relations, your kids, your nieces, your nephews? This is where you get to tell your story of grace, that you got something you did not deserve. I wonder, do your kids know your testimony? Do they know how you came to know the Lord Jesus? Listen, your kids will more readily embrace your God if they see how much you authentically love him. That's the why. That's focusing on grace, not law. Kids are not interested in your moral obligations or your sheer grit or will or determination to just do the right thing because it's the right thing. No, they want to know why. A child intrinsically understands fair. I remember my oldest was in line at a playground to go up the slide and some other punk kid cut in front of him. And if you're here, kid, no, you weren't here. You was in Houston. But my son instantly went completely volcanic. This wasn't fair. And rather than find the other loser dad who didn't know how to parent his kid, kidding, I grabbed him and said, yeah, you know what? That wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. But you know what? I've done a lot of really miserable, rotten things and I didn't get what I deserved. And he said, how come? I said, because the gospel, somebody else got what I deserved. Have you ever told your kids your story of grace? Third principle, parent with the end in mind. Listen to Romans 8.30, parents, and let this just sort of wash over you. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at the final product of your kid. I know right now you're thinking, is that thing even human? Yes. And it was made in God's image. And in his mind, they are glorified. Parent with the end in mind. The plan of redemption includes glorification. God sees your kids in mind as fully justified, fully sanctified, and fully glorified as his residences of his presence in this world. We get the privilege and the prerogative of being a part of their preparation. Proverbs 22, 6, even when they are old, they will not depart. Very old indeed. That is eternally, everlastingly walking in the way of wisdom. Which brings me to my fourth point. Wisdom is a way of life. It's a long-term program. It's not like you can wake up one day and go, whoa, it's Thursday, I'm fully wise. Yes, any more than you can wake up and go, oh, it's Tuesday, I'm super humble. If you think that, you've missed it. No, it is a process, a day-by-day, moment-by-moment expression of God's grace in every conceivable context. It's preparing our hearts, tuning our hearts to sing his praise. This is how we parent. We teach our kids to do the next wise thing. Not just the next right thing. We teach them to do the next wise thing. How would Jesus live 
his, your life if he were you. You're equipping them. You're unleashing them with wisdom. Teach them, instruct them, discipline them, disciple them to do the next wise thing. Are your kids characterized by doing the next wise thing? Better question, are you? Because if you are trying to simply follow a list of rules and fail, so will they. But when you and I get to model out that when we sin, we're not breaking a list of rules, we're sinning against a person who loves us. And when we choose to do the next wise thing, we bring him honor and glory and fame and renown. I do the next wise thing because he is worth it, not simply because it's the right thing to do. Do your kids know how much you love Jesus by you doing the next wise thing? This is how we parent our kids. It's a way of life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Parents, your kids are more concerned with how you eat that bag of Cheetos than how you come to church. It's the everyday, mundane aspects of life that we get to reveal God's glory and grace and gospel. Every day, walking in wisdom, accordance with that reality, doing the next wise thing and making sure our parent, our kids know why. Most of us want to know, okay, yeah, I get all that, but uh, what am I supposed to do now? Because I got a kid and whew, that cat is already whoop, out of the bag. That toothpaste is out of the tube. What am I supposed to do now? Let me say this. I am a firm believer that it is never, ever too early to start training our children in the way they should go. And it's also never too late. I'm reminded of St. Augustine's mother, Monica. He was not always a saint. Into adulthood, he was a drunk, womanizer, philanderer, not a very nice person. And Augustine's mother, Monica, was praying in the garden next to the cathedral in Milan, early church. And this was her prayer. Oh, Lord God, that he would love you as I. Oh, Lord God, that he would love you as I. Oh, Lord God, that he would love you as I. And she was weeping. She was crying in passionate plea. The bishop of Milan happened to walk by and he saw this woman and he thought her to be drunk. Just like Hannah in the Old Testament. She said, oh, no, I'm not drunk. I am pleading for my son that he would love the Lord as I do. And the bishop said this, oh, my daughter, the Lord will not forget the child of such tears. It's never too late. Do your kids know how you love the Lord Jesus? Believe the gospel. You go to your God and love him anew. Consider grace, which leads me really to my fifth and final point. What your kid needs the most, your kid's greatest need is you fully in love with Jesus. That's what your kid needs most. Your kid's greatest need is you fully in love with Jesus. I don't know if you're supposed to hit him with a plastic spoon or a piece of cloth. I don't know all those little tips. I have no idea. Here's what I know. Your kid needs to see you fully in love with Jesus, not mailing it in, trying to do the right thing for whatever reason. No, 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 no. Your kid's greatest need is you fully in love with Jesus. By the way, our church's greatest need is for our children and younger generations to see the faithfulness of God lived out authentically, sincerely, with integrity by all of the people that call this place home. 
See, it's grace that paves the way for wisdom. Jesus has already given grace. There is no sin. There is no broken relationship beyond his reach. Some of you parents just need to hear that and be reminded all over again. You will never, ever discover sin in your kid's life that Jesus cannot forgive. As hard as it might be for you, you will never discover sin in your kid's life that Jesus cannot remove. See, because of Christmas, the coming of the Christ, because of Easter, his death, burial, and resurrection, we as parents, we get to celebrate Hanukkah every day. It's not just eight crazy nights. No, no, no. It is God who keeps those lights on. We simply get to tend those little temples, to set them aside, to hanak them, to prepare them, to dedicate them, to say, this, this little person here is going to be the dwelling of God most high. And I will architect and array and arrange all of my life in preparation of this little temple. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now, you may not be directly responsible for some kids right now. Maybe yours are gone, or maybe you're a single adult, or maybe you're young married and not yet having kids. Let me, let me just tell you, on behalf of this church, there are a lot of tired priests walking around here. A lot of little temple trainers that are exhausted. And I'm confident that you, some of you empty nesters, if you walked up to some of these parents and said, hey, look, you look tired. How about we grab coffee? Or I tell you what, why don't you give me your kids this evening for a couple hours? You go to Andy's, defile yourself with frozen custard. I bet those parents will just hand you their kids and not even ask your name. They'll just go, here you go, take it. It takes a lot. And we want to see older generations who have not done it perfectly but will walk alongside us shoulder to shoulder saying, this is the way of wisdom. Now walk in it. It's okay. You're not alone. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus and you're trying to raise kids out of your sheer grit and determination, I say this with all sincerity, God help you. I don't know how someone who has not received grace can give grace to their kids and so I'm just going to invite you to believe this morning, maybe against all your intellectual faculties, that you would just believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he said he was. He is the son of God. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law and the wages of sin. Perfection and death, he did it. And he offers to give us all of his righteousness and to take away all of our sin, to give us grace so that we can now be distributors and dispensers of that grace ourselves. I invite you to believe. Not will you believe one day on your terms, but for some reason, do you believe today that he is the Christ? I encourage you to, to speak with someone you know or love or trust, maybe one of the elders, one of the staff, one of the deacons, someone that you know, and to have a conversation about that. For the rest of you, let me just remind you, we get such a privilege, oh my God, that we get to be a part of raising up little boys and girls who will be the dwellings of God most high for all eternity. Don't lose heart, you're not alone. Give the gospel to yourself. Be reminded of who this Jesus is, that he is worth it. He is a king who cares. He is a champion who has died, and he is a brother who is proud. He is worth it. So let me say, happy Father's Day. Or perhaps even better, happy Hanukkah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. that You are a good, good father. You always have our good in mind and your glory. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who is worth it. We thank you for your spirit. May we not 
Quench him, may we not grieve him. Father, I pray for the families of Bethel Bible Church. You would re-encourage anew all the parents gathered herein. That you would remind them of the big picture that in your mind their children are dwellings of you most high. They are glorified. We get the privilege and the prerogative of participating in their preparation. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray, God, that you will move irresistibly by your spirit. You will lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. You will rescue them from death and darkness and usher them into the kingdom of light of your son, Jesus. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us all over again of your goodness, of your trustworthiness, of your faithfulness? Would you fill us up with the gospel to the extent that we will give it freely? We'll be reflectors of your glory and your grace. God, may we parent like you do. Father, I pray for every person gathered in this room that they will have heard a sermon better than the one that was preached and that your word will sound forth and not return void. I pray this, Lord God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.